Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I talk about how quantitative investing, while rules-based and systematic, still requires human insight and input, from a strategy's initial construction to the evolution of a quant model to determining if an input is obsolete. These are just some of the considerations investors should think about next time they hear about a quantitative investment strategy. As always, thank you for listening. If you find this discussion interesting and valuable, please leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it. Okay, today we're going to talk about quantitative investing, but we're going to talk about, I guess, the discretionary side of quantitative investing. So those two things seem to be completely opposite of each other, but this is kind of working off an article you wrote um, around the uh, discretionary type of decisions um, that go into building a quantitative investing strategy. We're obviously big believers in quant strategies, um, and we, we, we run a lot of them. Um, the way that we do it is we extract strategies from books or academic papers, and that's what we build our models on. Um, but I think, you know, over the years, your development and our development of these strategies um, and the decisions that have had to be made um, have kind of opened our eyes to, you know, when you think about or you hear about quantitative strategies, there's a lot more decisions, um, human-based decisions that actually go into the development of those strategies. So maybe... To start, Jack, you want to kind of flush out that idea a little bit more and sort of talk about what I think the core of your your article was. Yeah, you know, as human beings, we're not programmed well to be good investors. You know, the things we want to do naturally are often the opposite things you want to do as an investor. And so that's the reason you want quantitative strategies. You know, you want quantitative strategies to try to take that human element out of the picture as much as you possibly can. But there's also a misconception, I think, about quantitative strategies. And that misconception is that we can completely remove emotion from the process because there are a lot of things we have to do as quantitative investors and anyone who runs a quantitative portfolio has to do that involve decisions at human decisions that where those emotions come into play with regard to how the strategy is built and how the strategy is run over time. And so so my point in this article was to highlight some of the things that as quantitative investors, where our human emotions have to come into the equation and why it's important that behind every quantitative strategy is a decision maker who's making decisions in the proper way, because any quantitative strategy can quickly come off the rails if the person behind it is not making smart, intelligent decisions using long-term data. Yeah. Even something like the S&P 500, I mean, it, it's a market cap weighted index. So at some point somewhere when that was first developed, somebody had to come up with that idea, which is, you know, we're going to weight companies by uh, market capitalization. And that's going to be, you know, how the index or that specific portfolio is constructed. And that might kind of work nicely into the first point, which is, you know, the initial construction of the strategy, um, you know, has a big, big role to play in, um, you know, what, how the strategy is built and and that's a human actually does that it's not done by a robot 
Right. So the first question is, what what am I going to do with my portfolio? You know, what factors am I going to use? How am I going to represent those factors? How am I going to rebalance my portfolio? How many stocks are going to be in my portfolio? There's there's so many decisions you have to make at the beginning in order to construct a quantitative strategy. And all of those decisions are subject to human emotions. So the person who's building that strategy could say, you know what, value has worked terribly in the past decade, but growth has worked great, even though that's not what's worked over the long term. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to stuff my model with a bunch of growth factors, and I'm going to plan on that working in the future. And that may be a good decision or maybe a bad decision, but obviously the emotions of seeing that this past decade where value hasn't worked is going to play into that. And that a human being is going to be more likely, you know, due to recency bias, is going to be more likely to stuff the factors into the model that have worked well in recent years versus factors that maybe have worked well over the long term. And so that's getting back to the original point. That's why it's so important that a person building the model is able to make the proper decisions here. And, you know, I can't say for sure whether value is going to come back. And I can't say for sure whether weighting those factors that have worked over 100 years is better than weighting the factors that have worked over 10 years, although I certainly have a strong opinion of that. But that's why human emotion plays a huge role in, in the initial construction of the strategy. Like for us, when we first built the models that we run on Validia, which are just model portfolios, you know, we had to make a determination about how big the portfolios were. So we basically run 10 or 20 stock portfolios. We then offer or follow different rebalancing dates. So monthly, quarterly, quarterly annually, and, and tax efficiently as well. And then there's sort of the universe that we have to choose from, which we layer in liquidity requirements. So it's not like our, you know, those were all sort of human decisions that had to go into how those portfolios were developed and run. And, you know, could we have said we're going to follow 30 stock portfolios or 40 stock portfolios and we're only going to rebalance them annually? And so those are the types of things that, you know, go in, I think, to your point about how these sort of quantitative strategies are developed. And if you look at any of these ETFs that are, you know, whether it's smart beta or other factor or quant strategies, you know, there's a portfolio manager or a team of people that are making those um, those determinations as to how the portfolio is constructed. And and you can have two value portfolio two value strategies that look very different from each other because of those things. And this is this is one of the reasons we've followed the strategies. You know, all the strategies we follow, we follow them exactly from the book or exactly from the academic paper. And this is one of the reasons we do it is that it's another way to sort of take emotions and human decision making out of the process. You know, it, it would be very easy for me to take a model, you know, based on a book about Warren Buffett and then say, well, you know, what if I tweak this one criteria or what if I add this in or what if I, you know, Warren Buffett might make a lot of sense with momentum. What if I stuff some momentum in there? And, you know, that, that's a never ending process where I'm just going to constantly be testing things and I'm going to fall into this trap of data mining a strategy that's going to work really well in testing, but not going to work as well in reality. And so that's part of part of our effort to limit the impact of our decision making on this is we've made a decision. We are not going to alter these strategies. We are going to run these strategies exactly as they were published and we're not going to make changes. Now, there are some strategies that do evolve, though, and that do um, sort of introduce, you know, new elements. And I think one of the firms that does a good job at this and he, he talks about it um, Jim O'Shaughnessy from O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, they talk about their research graveyard. So, you know, one of the things is is like how much research that they've done that they actually haven't introduced into their investment process because they're constantly trying to test and refine and, and to look for new edges in the market. Um, and the point that you made in your article was, you know, at one point, you know, O'Shaughnessy was using the price to sales ratio as the 
main valuation metric and his cornerstone value strategy. <clears throat> and then um, over time, the firm migrated to a value composite type of factor, um, which tended to do better. And, you know, there's, there's sort of reasons for why a composite might be better than a standalone value factor, like price to sales. Yeah. And one of the ways, you know, I, I didn't want to present this as, you know, we, we never change our strategy. One of the ways we deal with this is we are constantly combing through research to try to find new strategies. And, and what we're doing is we're, although we're running some of these strategies that might be a little bit older, exactly as they were published, we're also introducing new strategies that maybe think about things in a different way. And your, your example with O'Shaughnessy is a really good one. You know, the, the first version of what works on Wall Street had price to sales as its primary value metric. Over time, O'Shaughnessy realized that it's very difficult in advance to figure out which value metric is going to work best. And so a way you can handle that is to make a composite and put all the value metrics together. And then you'll never be the best performing. You'll never pick the best performing metric, but you'll also never be stuck in the worst performing metric. And people who are following price to book right now understand what it's like to be stuck in the worst performing metric. And so that's just over time, many aspects of a value strategy or of any strategy have to evolve because things do change. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit with Kai Wu in our podcast. There, there's a one of the big evolutions that's going on right now is this whole thing with intangible assets and you know any any of the any of the metrics like price to book that are based on assets are probably quite wrong in how they're valuing companies right now because only tangible assets are ending up on balance sheets and intangible assets are not and it's it's unfair to value a company like a Google or an Amazon or, or many other companies using only tangible assets and so that's a that's a great example of how you have to evolve the strategy over time. But the flip side of that is you have to be careful because there's this tendency to say, all right, here's what's working right now. Let me evolve my strategy towards what's working right now. So, you know, th there's this idea that value is, can be anything and value can be buying a rapidly growing growth company for less than it's worth. And that's fair. You know, if you can identify those in advance, that, that, that is a way to implement value. But a lot of people are talking about that right now purely because of the fact that value hasn't worked. And so now when value isn't working, we're going to find a way to redefine value. And it'll be the same thing with momentum or quality. When those aren't working, people will start to question them and they'll start to find ways to redefine them. And as a manager and as somebody building one of these strategies, that's the tricky part is you have to try to make intelligent decisions about what's in my model and how I evolve my model without putting too much weight into things that have changed in short-term periods that may not persist over the long-term. Yeah, no, that's a really, that's a really good point. And that kind of really flows into that third point in your article was, you know, you have to trying to determine when a factor like price to book or something else, you know, doesn't work anymore. And the thought process and the testing that, you know, needs to go into that, you used intangible assets in your article as well, which you just talked about. But, you know, I think the the point you're making is that, you know, you have to, you know, a thoughtful portfolio management team is needed. Humans are needed to basically make that judgment. And then those changes, if there is any changes at all, need to sort of be worked into, you know, a quantitative strategy that that is evolving over time. So if you think about this argument about whether the price to books dead, there's there's sort of two ways you can look at it. You can use the data based approach, which is, well, I can say, all right, over the past decade, clearly the price to book hasn't worked. Over 100 years, the price to book still has worked. And so, and Corey Hofstein looked at this in his piece, uh, his piece Factor Fimble Winter. Statistically, I can't say with the data that price to book is dead. I also can't say that it's alive. I can't make a conclusion with the data. The, the amount of data I would need is more than I'm going to have in my investing lifetime. And so then the discretion, which we've talked about, comes in. I have to say, all right, 
does the price to book make sense in the world we live in now? Does the price to book make sense in a world where intangible assets are, you know, 50% or more probably of the assets companies have? And, you know, at the top end of the range, I think the answer is clearly no. Obviously trying to value Google with a price to book makes no sense. At the bottom end of the range, that's a, it, there's a lot of question as to whether it makes sense. You know, it, it may, I certainly wouldn't be using on its own, but does it still belong in a composite value metrics? You know, I could make the argument either way. And, and as a manager running these portfolios, I have to make that decision and I have to make it with imperfect information. And that's where the human decision-making comes back into the process. And that, that's what's so hard about this is, you know, it would be great if we could just build a quantitative portfolio and the computer can just say, you know, I should drop the price to book or I shouldn't drop the price to book. And the computer ends up being right about it 10 years later, but that's not the way it works right now. And maybe eventually with machine learning, that, that'll be the way it works. But right now a person has to make the decision and, and they're very difficult decisions to make. Right. And as you said at the outset, I mean, we're big believers in quantitative models. What we we do is we extract them from books or academic papers and then we run them and we try to build our strat and we have built our strategy set out um over time but i think the the purpose of this conversation and your article was just to talk about sort of the discretionary decisions that go into these quantitative models and strategies and for investors to realize that like you said it's it's not just you know these models exist and they're completely robotic there's a human behind every one of them and that's just an important point, I think, to remember and realize. Yeah, the point wasn't to knock quantitative models because, you know, if you think about it, a discretionary model has 100% discretion in it. And, you know, given the issues we have as humans, I think the less, for me at least, the less discretion, the better. The point was to say, though, a lot of people sell quantitative models as, all right, these are 100% quantitative and we're taking all your emotions out of the process. And in the real world, that just doesn't exist. Behind the scenes, you know, it requires somebody to make intelligent decisions about what's included in the model, how you evolve the model over time, and, and how to deal with situations where maybe some of the fundamental principles of the principles of the model don't work anymore. How do I evolve my strategy in that case? And so the point was just to say there is no pure quantitative model. Um, you know, and, and, and as investors, it's important to understand that. Great. Well, we'll put a link to your article in the show notes. Um, thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.